0: Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Durrigan Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was and always will be the land of the First Nations people. In this episode I speak with Emma Turner. She is an experienced school leader and author, and I have long admired her ability to get to the heart of what teachers need to know. In this conversation, we dig into her recent books, Simplicitus, Simplicitus Auteus, and the soon-to-be-released Initium. Her ability to describe what teachers need to know about curriculum development will leave you scribbling down notes throughout the episode. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Emma Turner. It gives me great pleasure to introduce today's guest, Emma Turner. Emma is an experienced school leader and educational consultant, and the author of a number of books, including her trilogy, Simplicitus Simplicitas Artius, and Initium or Initium, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And I'm sure we'll discuss that today as well. Now, you yeah, know, we're gonna we're gonna be digging into your three books, Emma. But before we get into your books, are you able to just tell us a bit about your journey into the position that you're in today?
1: Yeah, sure. So I've been teaching in England in primary now for 25 years. I'll be going into my 26th year in September, which is frankly terrifying that I've been doing it for that long. But it's been an absolute pleasure to to work within the primary phase. I trained as a a middle school teacher, so for ages 7 to 14, but I've spent the majority of my career in primary. I've been an assistant head, a deputy head, one of the UK's first ever uh, co-head teacher setups, I've worked for a multi academy trust of 15 schools as their research and CPD lead, I've worked as a national strategy advisor for mathematics, and now I work for um, a trust of 18 schools in Birmingham in England um, as their deputy director of education, so lots of bits and bobs along the way lots of work around curriculum, lots of work around flexible working, lots of work around early mathematics. But more recently, I've had this focus on primary curriculum design and I've done a lot of work around integrating effective design principles within the primary setting and bringing in what we know about understanding how we learn as well. So that's been kind of my journey in a nutshell.
0: Yeah, you've done a really good summary of, of, you know, such a distinguished career. But look, I just want to kind of backtrack a little bit. And, you know, I I always find it really interesting hearing about how people actually got into teaching, you know, are you one of those people that was always destined to become a teacher or was it kind of, you just fell into it?
1: I actually wanted to go into medicine. Yeah. So, but then I was quite poorly when I was about 17 and missed a lot of schooling. And so I actually started to do a foundation course to access into medicine. And then partway through it, realized I didn't actually like blood, guts, and gore very much, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I'd always worked in healthcare, nursing, and kind of geriatric care, and that was the route I was going to take, but then kind of got partway through the actual training, maybe not for me, so I'd always, uh, alongside the care work, always done play work. Yeah. So run play schemes and kind of education, summer education programs over here. I thought, you know what, I could combine my kind of love of science and my love of working with young people and care and Mm. retrain as a primary school teacher. So I transferred to Liverpool University and went into teaching that way. And as I say, I did a science degree alongside a four year teach training course. It was a combined degree over four years up in Liverpool. And then as soon as I started on that course, I just fell in love with it and I thought, this, this is where I'm meant to be, working yeah. with young people, working within education, working within kind of the, the science and, and early maths aspects of it. And I've never looked back. I absolutely have found my calling, even though I was initially listening to the wrong calling. <laughs> so it's a kind of a, was destined to do it, but also fell into it at the same time. But yeah, that that was my kind of, I'm not one of those people who was five years old and thought, yes, teaching is definitely for me. But once I found it or it found me, it's the right fit.
0: Yeah, you know, and you, you spoke about a few kind of aspects of your career, which might have been a little bit challenging, you know, particularly you mentioned how you were part of that all, all female co-headship, you know, like mm-hmm. how, how have you experienced the ups and downs um, throughout your career?
1: That's an interesting question, because at the time when we set up the co-headship, we didn't necessarily think we were doing anything groundbreaking or different. We were just getting on with the job of work that needed doing. The school that we were working in, I joined it. I'd left the local authority as an advisor, moved into this particular school because the school was in special measures. It it failed multiple inspections and it was due to be shut as a result. Um, yeah, right. So the team a team was drafted in. So that in itself had many ups and downs, moving a school, From a place where it was really struggling to a place where it was really thriving. There was so much work that needed to be done with the community, with the pupils, with the staff, with morale, with standards, with everything. So that was that was a journey in itself. And we kind of moved the school on. And then the head who I was working under at the time left mid-year. And so my my I was the deputy at the time, and and the other deputy and, and I were like, well, what do we do now? Neither of us was in a position where we wanted to take on. The headship, and at the time you had to have a qualification. My friend didn't. My co-head colleague at the time hadn't got that qualification yet. I had, yeah. um, but I wasn't. I didn't think I was kind of in a position due to personal circumstances to take the headship on full time. Yeah. So I said, well, "What about if we do it together?" And and mm. she sort of said, well, "What can you do that?" <laughs> I, said, I don't know. And then we found out. We found one case study. A national case study of, of one co-headship that that happened so we presented it to our governors and said what about this model and they said well yes if you can work out how to do it so we set that up and we faced lots and lots of barriers along the way with that just stupid things like how do you pay a co-head teacher because mm-hmm. on the drop down menu at the local authority there wasn't a drop down box for co-head teachers like, how do you work it out how do you manage performance management? How do you how do you communicate to staff and parents? You know, who's mm-hmm. in charge? So there was all of that, but it was hugely exciting as well. And one of the things I'm most proud of is that it then became a role model for other people to do that model. People yeah. who potentially, for all sorts of circumstances, didn't feel they were in a position to do a headship full-time, either because they were approaching retirement, had some aspects of ill health or a caring commitment but it meant that we we encouraged talent to be retained in the profession so that was a huge up but at the time we were just cracking on and getting the job done it was only looking back that we think actually that was a really big thing that we did so I'm, I'm really proud of that and i know claire my co-head colleague would say the same thing uh but <laughs> that was an interesting period trying to convince people to do leadership totally differently totally differently but that's why i'm such an advocate for flexible working why i write about flexible working um and i'm a, especially specialist advisory board member for the department on flexible working and have been for for quite a while now but i do think that's uh especially in challenging times for recruitment and retention one of the one of the great models that can support leaders in education and support the retention of, of leaders in education
0: yeah you know really uh, interesting to hear you talk about that and, and I, I'm just I was just kind of thinking about what what things are like in Australia and I, I have to say I, I haven't really thought about hearing any stories of having that kind of what well, we call them principals here but I haven't heard of yeah co-principals existing in any of the schools that I've heard about so yeah it's definitely interesting and yeah, like. So did you, were you working, like, was one of you working three or four days and then you, you managed oh. it? Or was, were you both working at the same time at different stages as well?
1: Well, we did every possible model that you yeah. could potentially ever do because when we first started it, we were both teaching full-time as well. So we had full-time plus responsibilities. Oh, wow. um, and we have two exam, well, at the time, a two statutory assessment years in the primary system, year six and year two. Yeah. really big high-stakes pinch points potentially for schools because it's what your it's your externally it's your external data measure. Yeah. I was in year six, Claire was in year two. So partway through the year, it wasn't right for either of us to come out of the classroom because that, especially with the history of the school and the journey that it'd been on, we needed consistency in those year groups. So we both taught full-time initially and we had a little bit of release time each across the school. To do the the work of headship and then during the co-headship during the eight years of the co-headship we actually had five babies between us oh, well. <laughs> so we were constantly kind of in and out with maternity leaves but what that did was and allowed us to flex that model so when i came back from my first maternity leave i came back and i didn't do any class teaching and i just did co-headship work And i did three days and Claire did two, and she was still in class. Then she went off. And so we went backwards and forwards with one of us in, one of us out, sometimes together. So we've done every single possible model of a three and a two, a three and a three. So we had a crossover day. We've done a four and a two. We, we did every possible model of days there. And I talk about it a lot in the the Be More Toddler book that I wrote and the Let's Talk About Flex books, where yes. I talk through that, that process of, of, of how you manage shared leadership and what our journey taught us and some of the pitfalls but yeah we did every possible model going um which was hugely again empowering for other people to say it doesn't matter you know how you kind of it together is no hard and fast rule and the model itself inherently provides flexibility for leadership development because it's not fixed there's nothing more rigid and less flexible than one person full-time you can't do anything with it whereas Mm -hmm. we were able to provide continuity stability when one of us went off on maternity leave the other one was still there um so there was constantly one of us there but it allowed us to balance our lives and our work genuinely balance our work and our lives and still progress within our careers and still move the organization forward so it was it was really exciting very tiring <laughs> very very tiring but a really exciting uh, part of my career that was
0: yeah and it you know it sounds like you, you obviously had quite a, a close relationship with you know the, the other person that you'll co-head with and, and I guess you're, you've you probably learned a lot from that role as well because just from the outside looking in you're still living a lot of those same principles that you've, you've spoken about where you, you know you're very flexible in your approach to your work with you've got a thousand books that you're writing at any one time you've got the podcast you've got you know you're working with all these different schools and so yeah you can you can kind of see that you're still following those same principles and and I guess looking at how you can increase your impact and and that might be through different avenues which is what you i guess um looking at
1: yeah i mean i work so, three days a week at the moment for the multi-academy yeah. trust which leaves me two days to flex doing cross-sector work whatever i want to do and it's uh, for me it works for other people yeah. they might not like to be juggling that many different balls and plates spinning that many plates but for me it works
0: yeah, look, it's it's really interesting just hearing people's stories and, and you know, how they're able to do what they're doing and on, on the side of their, I guess, the usual job. So look I'm going to be a little bit cheeky today and I'm going to ask you a bit about a, a book which I haven't read yet I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure if you've released it yet but that's Initium and we spoke yeah. a bit before about you know the the background behind the title of, of that book but I was really interested in it when I saw that you're going to be looking at what primary teachers need to know about cognitive science and it's you know a space that I've taken a lot of interest in so yeah really really interested to see what sort of things you're going to be talking about in the book mm-hmm.
1: Well, as, as we were talking off air, initium or initium or initium, depending on how you want to pronounce it, how true you want to be to the, yep. to the original Latin. It means beginnings. So it's the beginnings of when children join our organisations. So how do we ensure that the way that we teach our younger learners is right for their de- developmental age and stage? A lot of the information about cognitive science, a lot of the findings, haven't necessarily been, for want of a better word, tested on younger children. Mm. Um, and some of the aspects of it, the findings that you know proceed with caution with some of it, because actually we can't say that this will work with a six-year-old or a five-year-old. Um, however, there are basic principles of how humans learn that we can apply, you know, across the age ranges. What Enitium does is it actually says, okay, so what do we know about cognitive science? What do we know about child development? What do we know about the reality of teaching young children? What can we actually observe from Mm. our day-to-day practice about what actually happens in a a primary classroom? And how can we blend those three elements to actually provide research-informed guidance that walks us through, this is what we know about humans learn, how humans learn, this is what we know about how children develop and this is what it's actually like to be in a primary classroom. And let's put those three bits together and talk about what we could do and how we could do it really well in the primary setting. Because a lot of the big voices within cognitive science have a secondary background. Now that is a huge gift to give us in terms of understanding a different phase, but it is very, very different teaching six-year-olds or seven-year-olds to teaching 14 or 16-year-olds. And we have to be respectful of the age and stage of children and, and meet them where they are, not necessarily say, well, this works when you're 13. Let's do it when you're seven. Mm. So what Initium does is it doesn't say that cognitive science and all the findings and all the things we've been working on are wrong. Far from it. It says they are, you know, really, really useful, really, really helpful. But they have to be placed alongside what we know about development of children, and also what it's actually like to work. In a primary school, in a primary setting, in a primary day with primary sources, primary staffing, primary builders, mm. and and so it sort of says, well, if we're if we're going to look at retrieval, or if we're going to look at spacing and interleaving, or if we're going to look at the effects of attention, what does that look like for when you're six or when you're eight? Um, and how might it be different, or or how could we apply it really well in that primary setting? So that's that's what Anitium explores. And the, the each chapter takes a very familiar aspect of cognitive science, and it puts it through that lens of child development and the reality of primary, and talks about how it might then look in a primary setting.
0: Yeah. Are you able to give us a bit of an example as, as to maybe, you know, how... You've got something from yeah you know, the secondary space, and then what that might look like uh, yeah in, in a primary classroom.
1: There's all sorts of things. I mean, there's a, there's a really interesting part about attention, mm-hmm. about that, how attention develops, and the attention, the way children can pay attention, develops across. Across the kind of the primary phase and into the, the early secondary phase. So actually, how you harness attention with younger children and how they then pay attention to the way you're modelling is different. There's something called distributed attention, which younger children have, which is even if even if you're showing them a specific thing that you want them to specifically attend to, they are more distractible. The younger children are and they naturally distribute their attention much more widely. So you have to be mindful of that when you're modeling, when you're presenting resources and distributed attention, I wouldn't say diminishes, it goes away. But what happens is as the children get older, their ability to kind of focus with laser precision and maintain that attention increases. So by the time children are in sort of early secondary, their ability to focus and their ability to attend to things is much better. So when you're actually presenting or modeling or um, explaining something to younger children, you have to be mindful that if if you want them to be looking at one thing, they're probably not. They are Mm. attending something. Now, this has implications for how often you might present things, what resources you might use, how frequently you revisit things, how you pull in and orient children's attention while you're teaching. And to the primary practitioner, that's like, well, that's stating the obvious. I know it's hard to get six-year-olds to pay attention, but it's an important conversation to have because if somebody says, oh, you know, this is how you model and this is how you do, well, that's great if children have already developed that ability to orient their attention and maintain their attention if you're dealing with younger children who haven't yet biologically neurologically developed that ability what are you going to do mm. instead you know how are we going to make this different if we know that developmentally children at eight orient their attention different to children at six how should we adapt to our practice because what we can't say is we know this development is happening Let's do nothing about it. Let's just do exactly the same for everybody else. So what Initium does, it talks about, okay, so what happens developmentally? What do we know about how we learn generally? And how do we find that sweet spot in the middle where we can tweak, develop, adjust what we're doing to match the developmental stage of the children. But there's there's lots of examples in there about this is what we know works for pretty much everybody. But this is what's actually happening with younger children. So how do we adjust what we're doing?
0: Yeah, and and look, that that builds really well into my next question, which is, you know, how can (laughs) the knowledge of how we learn inform the development of our curriculum?
1: Most curriculums I kind of want to set fire to because <laughs> they're just too big. They just yeah. big. what we what we know about how we learn is that if you really want to understand something, you need to revisit multiple times. You need to look at it from lots of different vantage points. You will need to apply it in multiple novel contexts. Explore how it connects to everything else to develop really rich, deep, well connected. Um, uh, but what our curriculum design doesn't do is allow that space. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't have any time to stop and stare in our curriculum. We don't have any time to stop and reflect. It's like a conveyor belt most of the time. It's onto the next thing, onto the next thing, onto the next thing, and children and teachers don't have time to explore misconceptions, go back over things, take the time to articulate connections. Because what we know about how we learn is it's ultimately about connection. You, yeah. you connect new learning to what you already know so if there's not the time to articulate connection explore connection develop connection through application in multiple contexts then the curriculum is kind of doomed to failure so one of the things that we need to be really mindful of in curriculum design is actually saying how are we going to ensure that not that this is remembered but it's understood and it's able to be used because if we don't develop that there's no point in being in the curriculum. So in terms of understanding, or sorry, applying what we know about how we learn, is actually recognising. I don't mean that we can't learn a lot, but there needs to be time for that learning. So if you overstuff your curriculum, you're never going to secure it because there won't be the time for the deep connection building that needs to happen through revisiting, you know, application in novel contexts. So that's why I want to set fire to most curriculum documents, because I'm just thinking that you're not hiding to nowhere with, with this because it's just just too big. You're going to rattle through it at pace. There's going to be no time for articulating, exploring and applying connection. So it's it needs trimming. So my first advice to anybody I'm working with this curriculum in curriculum is identify what has to be secure. Everything else is kind of secondary yeah I don't mean you don't teach it or it's not important but you have to be clear on the core and have to be clear on exactly what it is within that subject or unit or that strand that you've got to get sorted and then adjust your teaching to um, highlight and exemplify and and give sufficient time to those aspects
0: yeah you know it's a really good point that you make there and I think it's, it's probably a worldwide issue that we do have, you know, I, and I feel like it's, it's that old curse of knowledge, you know, in play where these curriculum developers, they forget what a novice, how hard it is to learn something as, as a novice. And so they've, they've just thrown all of these concepts in without actually understanding all of those smaller steps that, that a, a novice actually has to learn in the first place and how difficult it can be without yeah the, those connections being made. And, and, I think, like another kind of misconception around, you know, the connections is, it's not necessarily just making connections to their real life world, but it's about, yeah, connecting to whatever's in their existing schema, and that's where that that curriculum development is just so important, so that you're actually building knowledge on knowledge year on year. When when we are like looking at the the primary curriculum, like what would and this is one of the questions I pulled out of your your book, Simplicitas. I think it's right at the start, is is you know, like well, I'm
1: thinking which question it is, do I remember what arrived?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, this one is is pretty straightforward. But the question is, what is the purpose of the primary curriculum?
1: Yeah. It's it's an interesting one because what we don't do is we we rush straight to what be covered mm. rather than actually why are we? trying to cover this and in the English national curriculum at the front of each section it's divided into sections for each subject but at the front of each subject section is a purpose and aims section nobody ever reads it everybody jumps straight to the the list of objectives that you've got to cover they go straight to the what and not Mm. to the why Um, And that purpose and aim section is so beautiful. They're like, each one is like a little love letter to the subject. When you like, it's been written by somebody who really, really loves and is really engrossed and immersed and an expert in that field. And it explains why that subject has its place in the curriculum in the first place. And I would encourage anybody who's not read those even if you don't work within our within our curriculum to actually read those as summaries of why each subject is so important um they are very very wordy though (laughs) i think shakespeare himself might go a little bit of a boast (laughs) (laughs) let's trim this down a bit um but what i talk about in Altius is the fact that we need to take that purpose named and because it also covers all of the key stages, so all of the age groups. So you kind of have to look at it through the lens of, OK, so what does it look like for our children? So one of the first things you can do when you think about the purpose of primary education is to look at why the subject's being taught in the first place by revisiting those. But then you kind of need to step back as well and say, OK, so that's the, that's the purpose names for why we teach those subjects. But actually, what's our bigger purpose in terms of having these very little children? In school for eight and a half thousand hours of their primary experience, which is roughly eight and a half thousand hours. What are we going to do with them? You know, (laughs) why are they here? Because it's not necessarily to fill them with geography or fill them with history or fill them with art, it's Mm. bigger than that. And as a school and as an organization, if you're going to design a really good curriculum, you need a really good reason doing your curriculum in that way so we have to be really clear about what we want for our youngest children you know what kind of people do we want to be what kind of attitudes Mm. do we want to develop what kind of um, experiences do we want them to have Uh, and I talk a lot in, in the book about the fact that for some children school is their childhood there are so many children who come from underserved households who live in chaotic environments who live in poverty who are unsupported by the adults around or who are very time poor they may be very resource rich but actually time poor they don't nobody speaks to them so there are lots of children for whom primary school is their childhood so we have to be respectful of the fact that these are little children um, and the primary curriculum needs to be playful And it needs to ring fence the unique state of childhood as well. They're not going to be little again. You're a long time grown up. So we need to make sure that the primary curriculum. Yes, it's rigorous. Yes, it has challenge. Yes, it has fidelity to the individual subjects, but it also does something bigger in that this is the this is the introduction for our youngest learners to education. Now, we can bore them rigid with a non-stop trawl through worksheets from the day they arrive with us to the day they leave. Or we can take them by the hand and go, come on in and let's have an adventure. Well, welcome to learning. Mm. And so I, I think that the whole purpose of primary curriculum needs some really, really dedicated thought when you're designing your curriculum. Yes, we want children to perform well within the academic subjects. But actually, what do we want for them at the same time? What do we want them to experience? Who do we want them to be? How do we want them to have their thinking challenged but also feel like school is a wonderful place to be and a place where they are listened to, where they are cared for and where they can just safely be little?
0: Yeah, I, I love that. You know, And I love how you, you said you're a long time growing up and you know how school is their childhood. And, and there's a couple of things there which I think as schools, a lot of the times we just hope things will happen You know, so we know that we want to have that combination of academic rigor, as well as having that playful side of it. But we just hope it'll happen. You know, we obviously know that the academic curriculum needs to be planned for, but then a lot of those other things that you talk about, you know, the cultural things they're not necessarily spoken about in terms of whole school planning. Like these are the things, like, you know, this is the sort of person that we want to um, be developing by the end of, you know, um, their primary school time. This is what we want them to be like. And then backwards mapping from there. A lot of that planning doesn't often take place. And I think that's where a lot of misalignment comes into it as well. You know, both both um, within staff and also within the community where you've got the community wanting different things to what the, the staff want, or you've got um, school leaders wanting different things to what, you know, the staff want. And so there's there's all of these kind of misalignments that are happening because we just don't have that initial planning phase. You know, what sort of tips do you have for, for schools to, I guess, better plan for this stuff? Okay,
1: really easy acronym, BASKETS. So if you think about a child, every child comes into school with gifts they come with the languages they speak the experiences that they have the people they know the, pl- the places and people who are important to them things that they've already learned about they, they come with stuff even if they're really tiny because we start taking children in some of our school-based nurseries from age two they will still come with a, an awful lot in their little baskets our curriculum needs to put things in their basket as they move through now The baskets, uh, sorry, baskets is an acronym. Behaviors, attitudes, skills, knowledge, experiences, technology, sustainability. So we have to plan and map really carefully. The first one, behaviors and attitudes. So behaviors is not just don't kick people in the line or, you know, know, don't take other people's lunch. Um, Mm. It's actually how does our curriculum develop? an understanding of how we behave, how we behave as an individual, as a group, as a school, as a community, as a global citizen. So how does our our curriculum deliberately develop particular behaviors? The attitudes one is how does our curriculum specifically facilitate the development of positive attitudes? So is that resilience? Is it grit? Is it tolerance? Is it inclusivity? Is it care? Is it kindness? So how is that evident in our curriculum? The S and the K is the skills and the knowledge. That's the bit we're really good at. (laughs) They're Mm -hmm. the bit where we jump to the objectives and go, right, I'm gonna plan all that bit. So that bit is your really well-planned progression model. The experiences part is what's it actually like to be inside this curriculum? What experiences are you going to have? Who are you going to meet? Where are you going to go? What resources are you going to use? Who are you going to be taught by? What books will you read? Also, also, what opportunities will you have to work by yourself, work as a group, work as a team? So what's it actually like to be inside the curriculum? Uh, The T is technology. So how are we going to teach with technology to enhance learning and how much students access technology to support their learning? And then S is sustainability. So that's don't throw. It's not don't throw plastic bags in the ocean. That is how do we create a curriculum? that is sustainable as in children want to carry on with it beyond the initial point of instruction so how do we create experiences where children want to rush out at the end of the day and speak to their adult and say guess what I did today oh, can we look this up at home can we can, can we go, Can we do this can we do that and also a curriculum that's sustainable as in when the children are 14 16 18 picking their options for exams or routes for further study you know I want to pick geography because I've always been really good to sit and it was brilliant And I was at primary school. I want to pick history. So yeah. looking at your curriculum design through those lenses, as in then deciding by the time they leave us, what should they have in their basket? So they came in with this. This is what we're going to put in all the way through. What will they leave us with? Aligned with that is the idea that as a school, you've got to talk about your currency. Um, and people look at me a bit gone out and say this, but what I mean by currency is what do you value? And that's not your school values. That's not like hope, honesty, wisdom, whatever it is. Um, I'm talking about, you know, your professional uh, currency as in, is it progress? Is it attainment? Is it coverage? Is it data? You know, what does your school actually value? Because you've sort of mentioned the potential for misalignment. Unless you're really overt with saying, we are a school that really values this aspect. Is it performance? Is it attainment is it progress is it coverage it, because i go into many many schools and you know the school yeah. a will say you know look at look look at all the work on the walls the work in the books the trophies we've won, and i'm like oh brilliant that's kind of like <laughs> that's what you value other schools i'll go into and they go we've got you know this many children to this particular point and i'm like oh great Other schools will be like you know We've got a real mix of children who come in, and we're really proud that they've all made X amount of progress. Brilliant. And there are other schools who just like very neatly push a data sheet across the table to me and go, check that out. (laughs) Look at our exam scores. So, what do you value? And each school Mm -hmm. will go, it's a blend. Each school's lying because every single school is so different that they've all got their own particular bent on it. So, you've got to decide as a school what's your currency? What do you pay with?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Really good point there. So just going through um, baskets again. So I've got behavior. How does our curriculum yeah. develop an understanding of how we behave? Then we've got mm-hmm. attitude, you know, looking at, you know, not just their attitude to learning, but attitude, you know, towards others in within the mm-hmm. school as well. Uh, then we're looking at the, the bread and butter of skills and knowledge. And then experiences. What's it like to be in the curriculum? Would would you also say with experiences that that also includes like things like excursions as well, like yeah, those yeah yeah the the, ex- yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All
0: those, yeah yeah. And then yeah, technology and sustainability. And and I, I like how you've um, got that sustainability aspect of it as well because it also just kind of gets people to refocus on what things really matter. You know, like it can be quite tricky to. To work out what things we want to prioritize in the curriculum and so if you start to kind of put that lens on and, and you start to think about well is this sort of knowledge going to be the sort of knowledge that that the students are going to really value and you know be interested in not just within our classroom but maybe they can use it outside of the classroom as well so yeah lots of lots of important things to consider and and yeah going back to your your professional currency i agree with you like, a lot of the schools that i've worked with or, or you know spoken to that they struggle to just figure out what it is and it it, you can it can take a lot of i guess questioning to get to that point where they actually start to understand okay yeah you're probably right this is what we we value yeah and 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 then it's a matter of communicating that you know to to the community as well Mm -hmm. so Looking at, you know, so we've just spoken about like what's the purpose of the primary curriculum and then, you know, some, you've got your your baskets acronym as well that we can, we can look towards. But why do we need to create a streamlined and interconnected curriculum? Because I know that's a big passion of yours as well and something which can be quite different in the primary sector when compared to the secondary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so
1: the streamlining is kind of what I mentioned before about the fact that there's just too much. We have to to streamline it. If you want children to learn something, there's got to be time and space for them to actually learn it. So rushing through content in a myriad different number of things uh, in terms of content is is not helpful. Um, In terms of an interconnected approach, um, if you think about how we learn uh, and the importance of connection, the primary setting provides the most fertile ground (laughs) for making connection, and we don't necessarily exploit it enough. Now, historically, connected approaches have had a bit of a bad rap because what people have done is horrible homogenous topic work where you end up doing a lesson and you walk in and you're thinking, I don't know whether this is English or history or uh, what is art or what's going on. Um, So, when I talk about a connected curriculum, streamlined connected curriculum, it's not about homogenous topic soup where you can't identify what's going on. What it's saying is, let's look at the curriculum content, the streamlined curriculum content, where we've identified exactly for each subject what needs to be secured in each year group. And then we look for deliberate symbiotic connection. So the example that I always give is in year six, you might be teaching Victorian Britain. And a really good idea is to look at your year six science curriculum and think, you know what, we've got to teach microorganisms. So let's do that alongside when we do Victorian Britain. Because in Victorian Britain, there was a move from rural to urban uh, populations, a huge influx into cities and towns, which then produced huge outbreaks of cholera and disease and and what have you, which linked beautifully with microorganisms and the development of vaccines and all sorts of things there. Mm. Now, if those two were taught separately, they wouldn't be as well understood because you wouldn't necessarily understand the science that underpins what happened historically. And the microorganism thing is is learned in isolation with, with no kind of understanding of why development of vaccines happened at that time. If you then choose to use a text that links to that time, like Oliver Twist or Burley Doherty's Street Child, which is a really popular text over here, set in mm. Victorian Britain, that again gives another vantage point for understanding and connecting the um, information. Now that's, that's not about doing all of those three things in one lesson all the time, but mm. that's looking at your streamlined curriculum and saying, if we place these broadly at the same time, in the week, in the half term, that gives us opportunities to deliberately articulate connection across multiple subjects, multiple vantage points from which to view this information and to understand it. And the phrase that I use is that what that then does is the academic content of one subject actively augments the academic content of the other subject. If you taught them separately, they wouldn't be as good. They wouldn't Mm. be as well understood because they wouldn't be able to create these deep, rich connections. So streamlining your curriculum, stripping out all the extraneous stuff really focusing on what needs to be taught and then saying, okay, well, how can I focus on really positive connection making to be able to constantly drip feed and re-talk about the content, but in multiple different ways? So that's the kind of the premise of of the interconnected curriculum. It's not homogenous topic soup. It's not what happens in secondary, which is. You know, all the different departments don't know what the other one's doing. You know, the science mm. department have no idea what the art department is doing. The art department have no idea what the English department is doing. And mm. um, we are beautifully placed in primary to say we have the opportunity to have rigorous single subject teaching, but with a deliberate connection across them so that we can constantly make these and forge these links to help children to understand it more deeply. That, that's kind of the, in a nutshell, <laughs> what my interconnected curriculum is
0: yeah yeah and and i think you know it's it's important that when you are making those connections that you are really intentional and purposeful and doing it for the right reasons not just for the sake of it i think like in the past we have had those times where we thought about all right we're going to have a topic and then we're going to try to link all of the different, you know, learning areas to this topic. And then all of a sudden, you know, you've got these art lessons, which, you know, they're, they're painting about something to do with what you're learning in English, but it doesn't really have anything to do with it. It's just trying to make it happen. Yeah, so I like, you know, your, your point there of of making sure that when you are making these connections, that there's a reason behind it and it's actually improving the children's yeah. knowledge around and that topic yeah the concept
1: the, and the way that i explain it as well is that you don't always have to link everything so one half term you might have three or four subjects that have got a real natural affinity and they go together but the rest of them rest of the subjects you teach as individual standalone units of work that's fine and the way i describe it is it's that's flexible flexible connectivity so you you connect it flexibly so if it if it goes together great if it doesn't teach you it on its own don't need to forge these weird and random connections and and the other thing i explain in the book is that um it's about looking for marigolds now if you've ever read jennifer gonzalez's cult of pedagogy she's got this wonderful article on there about marigolds but it's about people and if you're a gardener which i'm not (laughs) if you apparently if you plant a marigold next to anything it makes the other thing grow better and that's why if you see allotments and gardens that grow vegetables they plant marigolds there
0: Hmm.
1: the opposite of a marigold is a nut tree if you plant a nut tree next to anything, everything around it will die. Oh no! <laughs> Apparently, But Jennifer Gonzalez writes about how that, you know, in, in your professional life, you should be a marigold and avoid the nut trees. But when I was thinking about that, when I was reflecting on what she'd written, I was thinking, actually, what we're looking for in the curriculum are marigolds. Units of work where when you place them next to something else, make the other ones suddenly come to life and grow better. So yeah. that... Active augmentation of academic content is by looking for those curriculum marigolds, you know, that that microorganisms next to Victorians that goes really beautifully. Then bring in another marigold, which is that really uh, rich text that you're looking at. So it's not necessarily about accidentally planting nut trees everywhere, it's about looking for deliberate academic connections because none of the subjects truly stand alone anyway. They're mm. all underpinned by proficiencies across the curriculum and this is another thing which drives me balmy about primary curriculum design is that no subject can stand alone in primary it can't and the reason Mm. it can't is because the children are multi-novice so if you are you know learning about the roman empire and you've got a little piece of text about the roman empire that tells you when the roman empire started and that it started in Rome, in italy and this is how long it lasted for you might think all oh, that's history except it's not it's not just history because children haven't yet mastered the geography of understanding where Rome and italy are mm. they don't understand the numbers for the chronology of it there's a small mm. matter of them actually being able to read <laughs> as well as be able to access it um, and <laughs> So no subject in primary truly stands alone. So you have to look at that interconnected element, because even if you're trying to teach single subjects, they are underpinned by developing proficiencies from across the curriculum. So they can't make sense of the history until they understand the geography. They can't write really well in RV until they've mastered writing you know, in, in English. Um, so it's that awareness as well of the, the connected aspects of, um implied proficiency from other subjects that we need to be aware of in curriculum design as well so there's the active augmentation of the curriculum content but also this idea that there are supporting or implied proficiencies from other subjects that we have to be aware of whenever we're teaching any individual subject, and they need to be planned for and mapped really carefully as well
0: yeah, you know, so it's all about knowing what that prerequisite knowledge is, you know. So if, if you are looking at, you know, a topic like like Rome and, and you've got to do all of these other skills as a part of it, it's about knowing how are we kind of going to um, set out those different steps so that it's building on each time. And then also like knowing what your actual learning intentions are for each part. I, I find sometimes when teachers try to do this sort of build this sort of curriculum, they get a bit confused as to like i want to i'm doing all of these different learning intentions and then they try to do them all at once when you've actually got to yeah spread them out and have different focuses from lesson to lesson
1: yeah definitely and the the thing about planning is that very often when we do our progression models and we do prerequisites and we identify we only look at that one subject actually need to broaden that lens and say okay in order to be proficient within this lesson in science Mm -hmm. actually they need to be really proficient in this aspect of mathematics so have they done that yet otherwise they're not gonna be able to make sense of this but then take it right back to working with our youngest little ones i've seen so many lessons fall apart because kids can't use a ruler or draw a table or I yeah. don't know which way to have the book round. You know, there's 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 that aspect as well of the kind of manipulating equipment. So I've seen so many lessons fall apart because the children actually can't use scissors properly yet. And the, the lesson's been the lesson has been like cut these out and arrange these. That was meant to be like a two-minute act part lesson, it turns into a 20-minute part because you realise the kids can't cut straight. So it's recognising again that developmental stage. So have we actually looked at the task, not just the content, but the task design itself and yeah. thought. Can this child do this? Does the task design reflect um, the academic content of this? Or are they going to be drawing on so many proficiencies from across the curriculum and implied uh, proficiencies like manipulating equipment, or even just working in a group? You said, right, have a group discussion. Well, (laughs) they can't manage a group discussion at the moment. So it's recognising all of those implied proficiencies that aren't necessarily in the curriculum, but Underpin the curriculum, and looking really carefully at those as well—not just at small steps in terms of prior knowledge. It's actually all of those aspects we need to be aware of.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it comes back to to what you were saying at the start of our conversation around, you know, back to that attention. What are what are the students thinking about? What are they paying attention to right now? all right, how do, I, how do I use these scissors? How do I cut in a straight line? That's all they're thinking about, not necessarily what the actual purpose of that task was. And you've got the red scissors. Exactly. I want the red scissors. Why have you got
1: the red scissors? I want yeah. those. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. And, and, yeah, you know, and you're 100% right. Like, we've actually got to think about what what's going to happen when we perform this activity in class, what is most likely going to happen? And mm-hmm. is there another way which can be, I guess, a bit more aligned to what the, the actual purpose of that lesson is. And it might be faster. It, it might not be maybe as, as fun as you, know, you, you might have hoped for, but at least they're gonna be learning and, and thinking about what we wanted them to be thinking about. For the price of a cup of coffee each month, you can support the Knowledge for Teachers podcast and help me provide more in-depth case studies and ensure its sustainability. I would be truly grateful if you went to patron.com slash knowledge for teachers podcast. Patrons will also get access to exclusive episodes, my key takeaways from each episode, and more. For large organizations that are interested in sponsoring the Knowledge for Teachers podcast, send me an email at brendan at yeah. Now, I want to talk about a, a subject which I know is very dear to your heart and, and something which I've also been doing a lot of thinking about, and, and that's mathematics. Yeah, and and I think, like, here in Australia, like, we've, we've started to, you know, to have different pockets of educators starting to push for, you know, like, a, a science of maths alignment, you know, to what's actually happening in primary schools. And so I just wanted to talk about, you know, like, firstly, we'll look at curriculum development for, for mathematics because... There's a few trains of um, thought when it comes to it. You know, you've, you've got your your spiral type curriculum, then you've got your strand, then you've got like your big ideas. Uh, you know, what, what's your take on all of this?
1: Oh, I've, I've held the line for 25 years now with this. If we think about understanding how we learn, it's got to be revisit, 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 retrieve, connect, retrieve, connect. So if you're working on... Um, a model where you block everything and you do um if you're working on something where you're blocking something and you're doing like six weeks on addition then six weeks on subtraction then six weeks on fractions and six weeks right what we know is that if you don't keep going back to things children are going to forget it you know we we need to build in opportunities for revisiting reconsolidating reconnecting all of those sorts of things so for me it's all about making sure that you've got this really clear progression model through the school, as in this is what we expect year ones to be proficient in within addition, multiplication, subtraction, division, fractions, shape, data, statistics, whatever. Really clear on the core learning for each year group going all the way through. Then you've got to look at that and say, right, if we've identified this as the core, how do we secure it? How do we actually get children to understand this really important core stuff that we want to learn? Now, you can block it and work through it and eventually go through everything once and tick it off at the end and say you've covered it. What we know is that coverage isn't learning. What we know about learning is that you've got to be constantly going back over it, applying it in multiple novel contexts, exploring it, developing it, building on it, gradually building those rich schema. So the model where you would block it all, go through it all once by the end of the year, for me personally, that doesn't work. What I would want to see across a a year is everything done once potentially by Christmas. So you kind of break the back of covering everything once by Christmas, then do it all again in the spring and then do it all again in the summer with our three big terms that we've got. And each time taking it a little bit further so that you don't do all of addition for that year group in one go and then never touch it again you do the first few bits of it the first time round, and then the second time round, and the next time you do that. alongside that so that's your the bulk of the actual teaching alongside that what I would always advocate is a daily 10 to depending on the age of the children sort of 5 to 15 minute additional math session which focuses on number which f- focuses on fluency and automaticity with key mathematical information. So for the very youngest children, you know, recognizing numerals and being able to uh, count, uh, moving through to number bonds, number facts, tables, fraction, decimal, percentage, ratio, proportion, equivalences, all of those things that children need to have at their fingertips, which they need that constant practice with. Now, I would always personally advocate to be doing that every single day because yeah. what you need is it's basically like the phonics of maths mm. so you can't read unless you've got that phonic body of knowledge how can you do maths if you haven't got the phonics of maths <laughs> which I know is not a real phrase but it's the it's the thing it? so you would have that daily practice so there's kind of two main strands for me that that run through this there's the high quality kind of progression model across the year where you revisit things multiple times but then there's also the regular daily practice of those key things now as the model that i work with with a lot of schools is when the children move into key stage two so when they move into the juniors um what i then do is that that daily sort of 10 to 15 minutes i would advocate that that sometimes is daily practice of kind of number fluency but also then it brings in Unit, aspects of units of work that you might not have touched on for a while. So, mm. say you're in a, in the in the thick of a half term, which is very number based. That 10 to 15 minutes might be regular revisiting of understanding shape or geometry or statistics. Just keeping the kettle boiling, making mm. sure that we're not forgetting anything. So that would be that would be what I would do. Uh, a lot of the models that are used over here work on a blocking model where you do it all in one go and you don't necessarily go back to it for me personally I don't feel that that works and I've worked within say early maths now for over half over quarter of a century which is quite a long time and so for me what works is little and often with the things you need to be fluent in like the um, I said the phonics of maths mm. but then this kind of I guess it's. I guess it's more of a spiral curriculum that you keep coming back to it, and you've got those multiple touch points um, to to build on over the over the course of the year.
0: Awesome! I'll have to send you a couple of blog articles I've written about in that lately because I actually use that same analogy about the phonics and. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There you go. Um, Great mind. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, so obviously I agree with, you know, pretty much everything that you're saying there. And I think it's, you know, just really, really important to have that understanding of like how those aspects are, you know, so important to everything else that you do in mathematics and, and that if you're not doing things like your retrieval practice and, and you're looking at your spacing and ensuring that you, you're reviewing things that you've done in the past, then you're right. If you are doing that, that kind of blocked practice, you literally don't see that topic again for, you know, one or two years. And no wonder the kids can't remember it, <laughs> you know, and, and it frustrates that teacher the next year because they're like, Oh, didn't this teacher teach them anything? Because they can't remember any anything at all. And and yeah, it, it just comes back to that simple thing of if you're doing that, the 10, 15 minutes at the start of a lesson, and, and then you're building knowledge on knowledge, it just allows the, the students to... Yeah, to retain what they've been learning in class. Yeah, so really important. All right, I want to I want to just chat about like some of the complexities of, you know, working in primary schools and and some of the decisions <laughs> that that school leaders have to you know really think about. That you know, I guess if you if you're not actually in the thick of it, you don't necessarily think about. it. And so for one of those things is like, how can we support mixed age classes? Ah.
1: Uh. Now, of the 20-odd years I was in the classroom, only three of them were in straight-year classes. Uh, yeah. only, the bulk of my career has been, my teaching experience has been in a mixed age class. So the, the, the backbone of supporting mixed age teaching is a really well-planned progression model. So being really clear about how learning is intended to be built through your documentation. So you've been really clear about these are the expectations for each year group what you then do is you teach the kids in front of you so rather than actually say I've seen some a really interesting practice where people have literally drawn a line down the middle of the board and said if you're a year three listen to this if you're a year four listen to that yeah no. teach the kids in front of you so chronologically because of the cut where our cut off is for the calendar you most of the children are actually going to be the same age you know, with a few outliers, you know, the oldest ones in the older year group and the youngest ones in the younger year group. In a two year mixed age class, which is the most common over here, they're chronologically at the same age. So straight away, you can kind of dispel this myth that they need to somehow have something completely distinct and different because they're slightly older. The bulk of them are the same. It's just a, an awkward cut off with the calendar. So teach the kids in front of you your curriculum should be really clear about you know this is this is the expectation for a year three this is the expectation for a year four so you have a look at where the alignment are so if you're going to track addition through okay what what's an addition what does addition look like in year three what does it then progress to in year four and then you look at the kids in front of you and go where are you sitting (laughs) whereabouts on this progression model are you because with the best will in the world, there'll be some year threes who are able to work at the year four objectives. And there'll be some year fours who would benefit from going back to the year three things or earlier. So it's actually that's what I mean by teach the kids in front of you. So know your progression model, first of all. Know how it fits together. Know how you can scroll backwards and forwards to it and then teach those children in front of you. There will always be extra things you can do with an objective. And it always makes me laugh when, when people say, but I've got, I've got this mixed age class, And they've done the Romans before. I like, well, they probably had about six weeks on it for probably about six to eight hours. They've not done ancient Rome. It's not like there's nothing else to learn about ancient mm. Rome because they happen to have studied it for six to eight hours. So there's always another angle that you can add additional challenge for if you're worried about that. The bit that I talk about in Altius is the fact that what we need to be really mindful of is it's, there will be children who had more experience than others in the class. So say, for example, you're looking at ancient Rome. So you've got a mixed class of age, year three, four children. So they're between seven and nine. Some of those children will have been a historian in school for longer than the other ones. None of them have done ancient Rome before because mm. this is part of your rolling programme. So just because the children in the older year group are older doesn't necessarily make them more expert in ancient Rome.
0: Yeah.
1: What it what it does mean is that they will have had more opportunity to have been taught to how to be a historian before. So when you're designing your task and you're designing your teaching, it's with an, an awareness and a respect of that. So understanding ancient Rome is new to us all in this class. So the actual kind of substantive content knowledge is going to be new for us all. So I don't need to be too worried necessarily about Mm. that part. What I need to be aware of is that the older children would have had an extra year of understanding how to interpret sources, understanding chronology. So when I look at my task design or my questioning, am I providing sufficient challenge for those children who've had more experience um, so that I can start to get them to build on that knowledge? So it's not necessarily about doing things differently, it's about teaching the children in front of you, knowing your progression model, and then having that recognition of what's going to be new for everybody, um, and what's not going to be new for everybody, what do I need to have an awareness, awareness of in terms of building in some extra challenge there so a lot of people are frightened of teaching mixed age classes because they think there has to be this really clear delineation between the two there isn't in the uh, weirdly in one of the year groups that i taught where i had straight year group i had a straight year six class i had the greatest spread (laughs) of attainment i've ever had in a single age class much more so than any mixed age class i ever had so mixed age teaching is is know your progression model, know where the links are, know what they will have covered before that you need to build on, or that they might be deficit in because they've not yet met it. Don't worry too much if they have done a topic or a strand before. You've never fully done a topic ever. It would be crazy to say, you know, we've done everything there is to know about ancient Egypt <laughs> <laughs> in primes, but what really? People from PhDs on this, I'm sure there's something somewhere you could go with this. And then And then being really mindful of what's new for all. What's new for some, and, and yeah.
0: then looking at it like that. Yeah, yeah, some really great tips there, and and I think yeah, you make your story of, of when you taught that Year Six class. I think that'll resonate with a lot of people. You know, is that <laughs> it doesn't really matter if you've got a you know a, a mixed age class. What probably is going to have more of an impact is that you know where where are they actually at in their their kind of academic level, and how can they yeah. actually you know perform at what you're asking them to do. Mm-hmm. So the next one is probably more for you know school leaders to really think about and, and that's around, you know, when we're looking at the agreed upon curriculum, how can we ensure that it's actually enacted with low variance? So we're okay. looking at that sort of accountability stuff.
1: Okay, so you've got to ensure that people understand the curriculum to start with. So just handing somebody a document and saying get on with it doesn't necessarily ensure that that teachers will teach it in the way that you want it to be enacted. So this sits alongside other policy documents in your school, so it will sit alongside your teaching and learning policy. So your curriculum policy and your teaching and learning policy should never be written by two separate people. They need to be, <laughs> they need to be done together because one augments the other. So. If your curriculum that tells you what to teach, the curriculum does, the teaching and learning policy will tell you how to teach it. You know, this is the way we would like lessons to be structured or learning sequences to be put together. This is how we would like to, you know, this this outlines how we really prioritise policy or we really pr- prioritise, you know, the creative curriculum. What, whatever your teaching and learning policy says should underpin or enhance what your um, curriculum document says. The other thing is, again, to talk really freely and openly about the school currency and also about that baskets model. You know, is what you're doing helping to put the right things in the children's, in children's baskets? then creating a culture of openness and collaboration within your school. So are you creating opportunities for people to see teachers teach who are exemplifying the way in which you wanted that to happen? So as a head teacher, if you know you've got a really great science teacher in school and actually they're teaching it exactly how you intended it to be, Mm. have you enabled people to go and actually see that in your school and have time to talk to that science teacher about the way they structure their lessons, the way they deliver things? And then talking with the specialists in your school, because as much as you're the school leader, you're not an expert in every phase. So talking to your early years lead, talking to your Key Stage 1 lead, talking to Key Stage 2 lead, you know, what is it that makes great EYFS, Key Stage 1 and Key Stage 2 practice? Because what you don't want to see is lessons in year six looking the same as a lesson in year one. You definitely do not want that. You want the way that you teach and the curriculum comes to life to be age and stage appropriate. So pull in the expertise of the age and stage specialists in your school and say, okay, this is the content we've got to cover. This is our teaching and learning approach. Now, what should it look like in the phase in which you're working with you as the specialist? you know What does great practice look like? And then working with them and their teams to develop that across their phase. What you don't want to do is have a McDonald's approach where every single lesson in every single subject, in every single age group is the same. Yeah. <laughs> like It's completely the opposite. If you think about the trajectory, developmental trajectory, that children go on from sort of four to 11, you don't want the same sort of lesson structure for a four-year-old as you want for an 11-year-old. So being really careful. And again, I talk about this in NITM about, age and state development appropriate pedagogy so pull in your experts from, and accept that the individual subjects might look different when they're taught as well so a p lesson is going to look very different from a science lesson is going to very look very different from an art lesson yeah. so talking really carefully with the specialists in your school and getting them to articulate to your wider staff what great looks like because if if we don't if nobody understands what great looks like they're never going to achieve it (laughs) um, having those regular check-ins and regular conversations with i talk about it in simplicity about the curriculum dream does everybody understand what it actually looks like because once you've articulated what it looks like people can achieve it if you don't say it and don't articulate it it's never going to happen
0: yeah yeah and and you know i think like a couple of things that I find a bit tricky here, and I'm sure it's pretty similar over in the UK, is, is just the time factor. You know, a lot of the things that you're talking about, it takes time, time together with people, time to think, time to learn, and, you know, time to communicate all of this. And that can be really difficult to manage, you know, especially when we've got a, a teacher shortage and we've got, you know, teachers feeling that shortage through their workload what are some ways that we can kind of free up that time and you know allow staff to actually collaborate properly and to think properly and to, to to develop
1: one of the things that I always say is actually really look at what you are doing because a lot of the work that we do in schools is busy work we're doing the work and we're actually we're doing it for somebody who might might at some point want to come and have a look in some folder somewhere. Mm. So actually is the work that, so kind of do an audit, an audit of your professional development time, an audit of your inset time, an audit of your kind of staff meeting and training time and actually think, right, what are we doing in those kind of protected times, first of all? Is it something that's gonna have really great impact on the pupils? Is it something that's directly going to be measurable in terms of impact? or is it stuff? Because there's there's lots of stuff that we're talking about. And I talk a lot about uh, the work of David Weston when he talks about the the organizational edge. So is what we're actually doing, can we articulate how that's actually going to have impact on the families, the communities, and the children that that we serve? If we can't say why, how that's gonna happen, then potentially we're focusing on the wrong thing. So audit what you're doing, first of all. Is it, are we focusing on the right things? Then looking at things like professional release time. So over here, uh, teachers in the early part of their career for the first two years get additional release time. So what are teachers in the early part of their career doing in that time? Are they utilizing that time really well to work with colleagues, to observe teaching, to do paired mentoring, coaching, all of those things? There is a national program that they have to do, but within that, there's also some some wriggle room. So how are early career teachers being supported and developed within the models in school and then it's it's looking at sort of regular quick wins so is curriculum development or curriculum design regularly on your agenda even if it's just a 10 minutes at the beginning of a staff meeting reminder a bit like when we revisit things with with students in the classroom, we've got to do that with messaging with with staff as well. We get so much information as teachers. We're bombarded with it all the time that unless we regularly, deliberately ring fence time to put things back in again, you know, things drop off the radar. So purposefully and intentionally putting things on the radar and then using time really efficiently. So one of the things that I recommend is on teacher days that we have over here is uh, in the hall or a big space that you've got laying out some tables putting all of the books from all of the children from the earliest from the Mm. youngest children all the way around stills and leaving them out for the duration of the inset day not for people to go monitor them but for subject leaders and for colleagues to actually go and look at what's the curriculum looking like Mm. having opportunities in that time to talk to multiple people all at once another thing that that we that I did in my old school was we used to have one staff meeting every sort of couple of months where we would do a walk the site ourselves as a whole team and people would narrate their rooms and just say at the moment this is what I'm working on this is what I'm working really well. this is what's working really well with my team this is what I could do some support with so they were quick wins they didn't take a massive amount of time but they did promote discussion the other thing I would say is ring fencing time for your subject leads. Within the school day, and I talk in simplicity about live and non-live elements, because there's lots of things that you have to do live, like when the kids are in or the teachers are in. But there's yeah. also things that you do non-live, where the children and the parents, the teachers don't have to be there. So potentially you could have some release time and just work on something. So identifying live and non-live elements of curriculum development and curriculum um, focus, and having a plan for those as well. But I talk about that in simplest
0: quite quite a lot <laughs> yeah 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 and, and and look one of the things I, I love you know speaking to you and and you know I've been following you on social media and reading your books and everything is you're you're able to really just get to the point of of what we actually need to be thinking about and do it in a way where whether through stories or analogies that teachers are able to actually understand and, and, you know, use that, that knowledge that you're giving. So yeah, lots of great tips today. And, and one of the, one of the things I just wanted to, to touch on there that I liked was how, you know, that idea of laying the books out on the table, you know, and, and getting teachers to actually look at, you know, this is what, what other year groups are looking at throughout the year. And it's something that we don't often do.
1: The books I in mean, It's like the pupil books, as in the workbooks that they've worked in. So the, the actual work that they've completed, what that gives you is an overview of the progression model across the school. And if you're a teacher who's only able to talk in year two, you get to see what year one standard is like. You get to see what year three standard is like. And you can see where you fit in in this kind of coherent development of the child. It also gives you as a subject lead a complete snapshot of your progression model writ large. There mm. it is. Yep. Um, and it's so useful as well for early career teachers to to do that to actually wander in and go. Do you know what? I've never seen literally mm. a child's journey all the way through here, and that, and now I can see it. You know, so it's um, that opportunity to actually see what the out the curriculum outcomes look like for children as well.
0: Yeah, and and so like looking at where a lot of schools and teachers are now, they're probably looking at the things that you've been speaking about today and, and think that's that's a lot of work to do. You know, that's, that's a pretty massive project. If, yeah. if you're not gonna go all in and completely redevelop the whole curriculum, is yeah. there a way that you can kind of do this on a smaller scale, whether that's, you know, across the whole school, whether that's individually, you know, what sort of things could teachers be thinking about that's gonna work for them, you know, I guess, in the short term? Okay. Identify core
1: knowledge and skill for each, for each subject. So kind of triage your curriculum, that's the way I describe it, as in have a look at what you're meant to be covering and then triage it. What's urgent? What's not so much? What's the stuff that, I don't mean you leave and you don't teach it, but what's light touch? (laughs) We're just kind of going to skim over that. So know your curriculum contents, first of all, and know what's important and then look either side. If you're a lone teacher, look either side, as in the year group before and the year group after. So do you know what's come before that you're building on and do you know where they're going next time? So how are you preparing them for the for the next session? So have a look at that. So know know your core knowledge and know your core skill and, and triage that. The other thing is to kind of have a look then, once you've decided on what that core is, is where are those beautiful little augmented links? So how can you help children to sense make in the curriculum by deliberately placing things together that augment the content? So have a look at that. If you're doing it on a whole school level, you kind of do need to have the baskets and the currency and the the curriculum dream conversations that everybody's on the same page, but Whether you use externally produced curriculum resources or whether you've developed your own, you must have that idea of what's the most important content that children need to develop. Is it coherent across the school? And then how does your teaching and learning policy facilitate that happening? So how does the way that you structure your teaching actually enable children to make progress within it? So they're the kind of initial things that I would go to when I work with schools. Um, That's the thing I go to first. Show me your triaged curriculum and they go we haven't done that bit so right that's where we start then (laughs) and then um, have a look at your teaching and learning policy does that facilitate the curriculum being enacted in the way that you want it to happen
0: yes yeah really important there that I think when, when teachers are working in either smaller schools or working in isolation or, you know, they haven't quite got a whole school approach that they've still got something that they can be doing. And and looking at, yeah, I guess prioritising, you know, you use that analogy of the, the triage. And I think if, if you're able to just work out, right, these are the essential things and just get that part of the curriculum you know, really solid and get it right and make sure that you're, you're using those things that you've spoken about before, you know, like retrieval practice and making those connections and going back to it. Yeah, I think that there's some yeah really, really clear tips for teachers. Emma, I'm mindful of time and, you know, really enjoyed this conversation, but I just want to finish up with looking at, you know, this, this podcast is called the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. So what other bits of knowledge or resources would you recommend for teachers and school leaders?
1: Link to curriculum?
0: Yeah, or well, it doesn't have to be, you <laughs> know, I'm sure you, you've got other things that you might want to talk about, but it can okay. be, yeah, curriculum or, or outside of it. But
1: Okay, so there are a couple of books that I would recommend. I didn't know you were going to ask for this one, so I'm kind of frantically reaching around my office. The third book that I would recommend that any educator reads, whatever phase they're in, is The Magic Leaving Business by Sir John Jones. This is the book that, if you <laughs> that if you're ever feeling jaded, will make you fall back in love with teaching again and remind you why you did it. Also, packed full of really, really thought-provoking elements for leaders, as in, you know, why do we do what we do in our school? So, the magic weaving business boss, John Jones. If children aren't behaving in school or you haven't got a culture where it's calm and it's consistent and children are enabled to learn in in that supportive calm environment. No learning is going to take place, so I would say next look at behavior so anything by Sam Strickland, so the behavior manual that Sam Strickland wrote or and they don't behave for me by Sam Strickland is absolutely fundamental because you can't get down to the business of curriculum and learning until you've created a culture where it's calm and consistent and kind. So I would have a look at that, that work there. Then I know you've had one, uh, I guess, I can't find it, I think it's in my work bag actually, Chris Such's book, The Art and Science of Teaching Primary Reading. And the other one to that is Thinking Deeply About Primary Mathematics by Kieran Mackle. I have a slight obsession with that book there. Now, yep. he's just retired, which is not Kieran, which has slightly broken my heart. But I'm now looking for Mark, M- Mark McCourt's book, Mark McCourt's book, Teaching for Mastery. Yep. It's a mathematics book. But the first section, which talks about understanding how we learn, is my ultimate go to book for talking about teaching and learning so Teaching for Mastery by Mark McCourt he just announced this weekend that he's retiring and I'm I feel like wearing a black armband with number of <laughs> <and I'm, laughs> mildly, mildly devastated if you can be mildly devastated if not an oxymoron but yeah Teaching for Mastery by Mark McCourt so John Jones, Sam Strickland, Kieran Mackle, Chris Such um, Mark McCourt they are my kind of go-tos for for anything that I'm doing
0: for teaching. Them. Yeah, great list there. And yeah, I've previously spoken to both Chris and Kieran on on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're brilliant and yeah, love the way that they think and the way they're able to articulate their thinking as well. So yeah, thank you for your time today. Thank you for your, your wonderful recommendations and all the, the knowledge that you've imparted on, on teachers today. And yeah, look, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So thank you, Emma. Thank
1: you for having me. It's been a delight. Thank you.
0: really enjoyed this conversation with Emma because she was able to combine her knowledge of the cognitive science with her practical experience as a primary school leader to deliver her messages in a really user-friendly manner. Here are my key takeaways. Primary educators need to contextualise the cognitive science based on the developmental stage of the learner. I like how she emphasised the need for schools to know their currency. Her BASKETS acronym, Behaviours, Attitudes, Skills, Knowledge, Experiences, Technology and Sustainability Highlights the different aspects that we need to take into account when planning a curriculum. We need to streamline the curriculum and strip out the extraneous stuff and focus on what needs to be taught. An interconnected curriculum is about making deliberate connections that improve students' understanding. We're looking for curriculum marigolds that make learning better. Coverage isn't learning. I love how she highlighted some important considerations when teaching mixed age classes. Just because some students are older, it doesn't mean that they know more about certain concepts or topics if they haven't been taught it. A straight year group can have just as great of a spread of attainment as a mixed group and how even if they've done a topic before, they've never really learnt it all. We can aim for a low-variance curriculum but need to understand that it will still look different for different year groups and subjects. A lot of the work that we do in schools is busy work. I think the idea of looking at student workbooks across the whole school was a great idea to give everyone an understanding of what is actually happening. Triage your curriculum to prioritise what's urgent. I just wanted to give a shout out to all of you who have come up to me at various conferences and school visits over the past few months and told me how much you've enjoyed listening to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. I'm glad that you're enjoying the conversations as much as I am. Also... If you are interested in working with me, feel free to contact me at brendan at I haven't got many slots left for this year, but have some availabilities for 2024. Next episode, we chat to another UK-based educator, the CEO of Times Tables Rockstars, Bruno Reddy. But funnily enough, he was actually the first person who I've recorded an episode with face-to-face. Some of my guests have been really relaxed and just happy to see where the conversation goes, whereas others have been ultra-organised. Bruno was definitely the latter, and done it because he was conscious of trying to deliver his message in a concise and structured manner to support listeners in making connections. He goes over some of the nuances of cognitive load theory and gives his take on the science of maths. However, that's it from me for today, and as always, stay curious, keep learning, and teach with purpose. Bye for now.